Let's open the Lord again to the Gospel of John. If you'll find chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. On this third Sunday of Advent, we're returning once again to the blessed prayer that our Lord lifted on the very night he was betrayed. And we've made the observation along the way that this is not only an act of intercession by Jesus as he turns to pray out loud to his Father, but this prayer is a revelation. It is a revelation of the one we know as Jesus of Nazareth, the one whose birth that we are now celebrating. So let's dip into this prayer once again and listen to this fragment of it beginning in verse 11. Here Jesus again prays out loud. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And these are the very inspired words of Jesus. And now may the Father bless them as we hear them proclaimed. In this short section of prayer we've just read, we encounter some initially troubling and sad news. In verses 11 and in verse 13, Jesus, in prayer, announces his departure to the disciples. You see it in verse 11. He says, I am coming to you with his eyes lifted as he's praying out loud. He says, Father, I am coming to you. And again in verse 13, he says, but now, now I am coming to you. And certainly those were difficult words to hear. Over the three years that the 12 had been with Jesus, they had grown very attached to him. They loved him. And now they hear as he says it again, as he says it in prayer, he is going. And they don't know exactly what that means. Where is he going? And when is he going? And how will he get there? And will he ever come back? But this is something that Jesus had repeatedly said to them just within that block of chapters, chapter 13 through 16, that farewell discourse. Jesus had said it repeatedly that he's leaving. Listen, in chapter 13, verse 33, he said, where I'm going, you can't come. In chapter 13, verse 36, again, where I'm going, he says, you cannot follow me. Chapter 14, verse 2, in those words we find comfort in, where I am going, I am going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going. In chapter 14, verse 12, I'm going to the Father, he says. In chapter 14, verse 19, yet a little while and the world will no longer behold me. Then in chapter 16, the chapter just prior to his great prayer, he says, I'm going to him who sent me, and I've said these things to you, and now sorrow fills your heart. And then in chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, again, he says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, because I'm going to the Father. And in verse 16, rather, in chapter 16, verse 22, he says, so now, now sorrow fills your heart. And so this was a sad time for the disciples. I can imagine they were thinking how wonderful it would be if Jesus just stayed there with them. 
if he never left? I mean, wouldn't it be great if the kingdom that Jesus taught and the, the blessings he spoke of that were related to the future, wouldn't it be wonderful if all of that came true without Jesus having uh, to leave? And now he's made it repeatedly clear he has to go, and, and it's sinking in that he must go. And so, even as the Lord says, a profound sense of sorrow now falls upon the hearts of the disciples. They don't understand what is going on. But after Pentecost, they will. What they don't understand is that in order for the plan of salvation to be completed, in order for the kingdom to come in all of its fullness, Jesus had to go to the Father. He had to depart. First, he had to depart to the cross. There he had to be immersed in the wrath of God. He had to traverse the threshold from life to death. He had to be buried in the darkness of the tomb among the dead. And then from that dark place, he would, he would be raised on the third day. And 40 days after that event, he would ascend to the Father, to the right hand of the majesty on high. And he would sit there on his throne until the day he would return. Now, they didn't understand all that. But that's why Jesus had to go. The one who came in the manger had to go back to the place from which he came. That was the plan of salvation. Had, had he not departed, it would have never been completed. The di disciples would have been left with an incomplete mission. And so Jesus had to go. Jesus will leave the world, and the disciples will stay in the world. He's leaving and they're staying. And think of this. Jesus had given them an explicit look at the world he was leaving them in. You remember the words that precede this great prayer in chapter 16 where Jesus speaks of the trouble and the suffering that would come to the disciples. In chapter 15, Jesus had said these words. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then Jesus says the same things as he ends chapter 16. So they're sad. Jesus is leaving them in the world, and the world that Jesus is leaving them is a very hostile place. It's not a friendly place at all. It's a world that, that literally hates them. The same world that would crucify Jesus is the world there to live in. And so the focus of this prayer is on the preservation of the disciples in the world. Jesus sees the threatening character of the world and he prays for them because he's leaving them there. He wants their faith strengthened. But he wants them, as we're going to see in just a moment, he wants them to realize that nothing and no one can ever defeat the divine purpose. He is leaving them. They are staying in the world 
and yet all will be okay. So in this prayer, Jesus readies the disciples for his departure. So he prays about things that would help and encourage them. And the first thing he begins to pray about is he, he extols, very legitimately, he extols his faithfulness to the Father in doing what the Father commanded him to do. Jesus in this prayer is, is giving, as one man says, an account of his stewardship. He is rehearsing back to the Father the things he did for the disciples. He is proving himself here to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And so the son speaks to the father with the disciples listening, and he says, here is what I've done, father, for these men you gave me. Notice verse 12. He kept them. He kept them, and he kept them in the father's name. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them. So as the great shepherd, as the good shepherd, he says, I fulfill my task. And this word kept has in view a constant, continuous, unfailing spiritual keeping. He is the good shepherd. He has all of God's omnipotence. He has God's authority. And he has treated these disciples as a treasure to be preserved. And so he kept them. But he kept them in the name of the Father. Now, we've already noted that when the name is mentioned, we think immediately of the character of God, but there's even more than that. For the name of the Lord also is indicative of his power. This is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. You hear it in in Psalms, Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of of Jacob protect you. We're protected by the name of the Lord. Again, in the Psalms, the psalmist says, O God, save me by your name. And that proverb we all know, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And so Jesus had kept the sheep in the name of the Father where his power overshadowed them. But in verse 12, he's also guarded them. He kept them, and he guarded them. Verse 12, I have have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus is telling the Father, I not only kept them in your name and and overshadowed them with your power, but I sustained their infant-like faith. I sustained them. I prevented their apostasy. That's what he's saying. I prevented their spiritual defection. They, They surely would have been lost had I not held on to them. That that's why Jesus is praying. Because Jesus had guarded them and was guarding them, they had not and could not ever lose their salvation and no one could ever take it away. They belonged to the good shepherd. And the good shepherd was standing guard over them, sustaining their faith, even though they may not even be aware of it. He was making them strong. The gospel according to Luke tells us about something that happened At this very moment, after they had had the Lord's Supper, 
in Luke chapter 22. Luke says they had the Lord's Supper, they had the final Passover, they had the New Covenant meal. And after supper, a dispute arose among the disciples about who of them was the greatest. Now, can you imagine that? Talk about bad timing. I mean, the Lord has just taught them everything he taught them in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And they come to the end of the supper. And what do the disciples want to talk about? About which one of them is the greatest? Which one of them has the most followers on Twitter? So here they are posturing themselves, acting like big shots, and then Jesus turns to Simon Peter, who was the self-assured spokesman for the twelve, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. I mean, can you imagine the chills running down the back of Simon? Simon... Satan has been banging on my door asking for you. He wants your soul. He wants to sift you like wheat. You're such a a big mouth. You're so strong, you think. You're the, the big shot disciple, and Satan wants you, and he wants to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus says, but... I've prayed for you. I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And then Jesus utters a word of prophecy. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, Peter, as we know, would leave that supper and go and make a very big mess of things, wouldn't he? In fact, he would make such a big mess that he would come to the place of denying to a slave girl, that he even heard the name Jesus. But he did not turn away from his Savior with finality. He did not fall into apostasy, even though he sinned grievously against the Lord, even though he was a coward. Why didn't he fall with finality? Why did he not lose his salvation and forfeit eternal life? Why? Because the Lord Jesus guarded him. He was watching over his soul. He kept him from destruction. He upheld Peter's immature faith. Later, Peter was broken. His heart was repentant. That's how you know he belonged to Jesus. His heart was broken. The Lord had prayed that the faith of Peter would not fall, and it didn't fall or fail. And thanks be to God that the great shepherd kept his sheep from danger. Jesus said in John 10, I'm giving them everlasting life, and they will never, ever perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus is praying this out loud to the Father so the disciples will know that if they are faithful to him, it is because Jesus is guarding them. But there was one who did fall. And Jesus mentions that. Not one of them has been lost, Father. Not one, except this one called the son of destruction, that the word of God might be fulfilled. 
Now surely these are the most disturbing and perplexing words that could ever come from the lips of Jesus. In fact, maybe it's hard for some of us to even imagine that Jesus of Nazareth would say such a thing about another human being. But here he does, and he does it in prayer, this son of destruction. Well, of course, he's referring to Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. We go back and think about the setting of this night. So many wonderful things had already happened. The farewell discourse in chapter 13 begins with the, G, with the Lord Jesus washing the disciples' feet and teaching them to love and serve one another and follow his example of humility. What an incredible scene, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then Jesus began to teach And he taught them the magnificent truth that they would really not be left alone. He would send them the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would be with them and in them. And that was a glorious thing to hear. And then they had shared the last supper together, this this sacrament of communion, this means of grace that Jesus established as an emblem and guarantee of their gracious standing before God. But in the midst of all of these wonderful things happening, Something profoundly evil was transpiring as well. Satan was also at work, wasn't he? The devil had opposed Jesus from the outset of his life. The father of lies. Always working from the very infancy of Jesus till this moment to deflect him, to divert him, to discourage him, to stop him in his mission. We think about the birth of Jesus. And soon enough, Satan, working through that maniac, King Herod, slaughtered all of the children in Bethlehem, all of the baby boys in Bethlehem, in order to destroy the infant Jesus. Satan working through a maniacal king. Then Jesus begins his public ministry. He he comes out, as it were. He comes out in public. He goes into the wilderness, and there Satan is waiting on him. And again, Satan hurls his attacks at Jesus, and he's there trying to divert the Lord from his mission, trying to stop him. The devil was always nearby Jesus. Always lurking, always plotting, always seeking an opportune time to stop him or at least slow him down. And now at the last meeting of the disciples, Satan engages his final solution. What happens is recorded in chapter 13 of this gospel. The the language is almost electric. During supper, John writes... The devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Some evil strategy to stop Jesus, betray him. Of course, we know that Satan is playing into the hands of God. But here's this attempt To have one of the disciples betray the Lord and thereby prevent whatever it is he's going to do. 
And so John continues his description. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now imagine 12 men sitting around the table with Jesus, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, and they were uncertain of whom he spoke. And so one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, who we know to be John, was reclining at the table by Jesus' side. And Simon Peter motioned to that disciple and said, who is Jesus talking about? So that disciple, laying on the breast of Jesus, says to Jesus, Lord, who is it? Who is the betrayer? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. At that moment, after those words from Jesus, after the man had just received Holy communion from the hand of Jesus. He immediately went out, John says. He he left in a hurry. Jesus remains with the disciples. He teaches them what we find in chapters 14 through 16 of John. And Judas is out all the while doing his dirty business with the religious authorities, working a deal to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So there are 11 faithful ones left. Don't you know they were stunned? Maybe like we are stunned hearing it again. The 11 remaining disciples had to be stunned by this strange verbal transaction between Jesus and Judas. Surely they were perplexed by the way Jesus spoke of this man as the son of destruction. We we see that in only one other place in the Word of God. When Paul wrote the Thessalonian Christians, he authored two letters to them very early in the life of the Christian church. And he spoke of the Antichrist. And there in chapter 2, verse 3 of his second Thessalonian epistle, Paul says, There is coming a man, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, also known as the son of destruction. It's as if Judas is an Antichrist. The Antichrist. To call him the son of destruction means he is the utterly lost one. He has been designated unto perdition. Maybe the disciples were thinking, if if they could even think, maybe they were thinking about something Christ had said in John 6. Maybe this flashed before their eyes. Jesus said to them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now they know what he meant. They know who he meant. Judas is now openly identified as the very son of hell. He's a model, as one 
writes, a model of what it means to be lost. He is one that the Lord had not kept, had not guarded. He had not sustained this man. Though Judas was a disciple, though he professed love and allegiance and faith in Christ, though he was a witness to the whole ministry of Jesus, including the miracles and all the teaching, though he spent three years at the side of Jesus, he was not converted. There's something about Judas that maybe you haven't realized. In John 12. In John 11, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And in John 12, we read this account. Listen to a fact about Judas you may not have noticed. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany again, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from a jar of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He had charge of the money bag, and he would help himself to whatever was put in it. And thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. He was a devil. Remember the context. This is what Jesus is praying He is praying this for the disciples to help them. He is forcing them to remember Judas for a reason. Judas did what he did because he wanted to do that. Judas was fully responsible for his own wickedness and the plot he constructed against the Lord. Judas acted freely without any coercion. He was not the victim of some deterministic force. He did what he did because he wanted to, but what he did was absolutely ordained by God and foretold in the Word of God. It's an amazing thing. The greatest crime in the history of humanity was the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And the greatest crime in the history of humanity was included in God's sovereign decree from eternity past. Now notice Jesus in his prayer says, I've kept them all, Father, except the one, the one son of destruction, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture was Jesus thinking of? Well, he had one in mind. 1,000 years 
before Judas betrayed Jesus, King David penned these words. And this is the scripture Jesus referred to. King David wrote, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And now it happened. A thousand years before Jesus was betrayed, that awful moment, that strategic moment, that necessary moment in the plan of salvation had actually occurred like all moments in human history, all ordained by God to bring about his eternal purposes. If you'll let your mind go a little bit down the road, you can see what Jesus is doing. He is leaving the disciples. He is leaving the disciples in a hostile world. He is trying to encourage them. What is he showing them by mentioning Judas? He is showing these men what an awesome God they will serve. Judas was a fully responsible moral agent before God. But all that he did freely and responsibly as a moral agent was included in God's sovereign purposes from eternity. And if the Lord is king of that, he's king of everything. After this prayer, Jesus was betrayed by a kiss. He was arrested. He did die. The promise of Genesis 3.15 did occur. The seed of the serpent bit the Son of God on the heel. But then three days later, the rest of Genesis 15, Genesis 3.15, was fulfilled. Christ was bruised on the heel by the serpent in his death. But on the third day, on Sunday morning, the Son of God crushed the head of the serpent. And he delivered all of us from death and guilt and hell. And he showed us that he has the final word when it comes to the plan of salvation, not the devil. In verse 13, we we then come full circle. Jesus says in prayer, these things, Lord, including my, my prayer regarding Judas, Lord, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy in themselves. So, do you see what Jesus is doing? He is praying for their joy. They are going to be left. They're going to be left in a hostile world. But Jesus reigns. And there's the source of joy they need. The only thing these men would do after this prayer, they would go into the world with the gospel. We are here this morning meeting in a New Testament church because these men got the message. They took joy 
in the sovereignty of God. They took joy in the mercy of God. They took joy in the faithfulness of Jesus, even if they were suffering. And they, they courageously and boldly, at the cost of their own lives, went to the four corners of the globe with the gospel Jesus entrusted to them. What comfort they must have had. What assurance. The life of Jesus the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, his passion, his cross, his death, all of it planned from eternity, all for the benefit of his sheep. He had done all of that to save them, and now the one that did all of that is keeping them and guarding them, and nothing would happen to them outside his mercy. And that's why we have read this prayer this morning. What comfort to find the truth coming from the lips of Jesus that all that happens to us happens by the wise, eternal counsel of the Father's own will. What a blessed thing. Everything that transpires in human history has been designed to bring about the salvation of you and me. Everything. And here is the joy, the source of the joy we have even as we face a future in the world, even as we face the prospect of persecution and suffering and the pains of tribulation, all of those that Jesus promised, we will have his joy made full in ourselves. Not one for whom Christ died has been or will ever be lost. No Christian has ever lost their salvation or ever will. Never. We've often asked as we scan the headlines and we see Christians literally dying for their faith, literally being given the choice at gunpoint to say Christ is Lord or curse his name and we see them take the bullet in the name of Jesus and we wonder how do they do that? Here's the answer. They don't. The Lord gives them dying grace, dying strength. He will not let you fall. Do you see that? Not one will be lost. He had preached so pointedly all, all, he says in chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing, lose nothing of all the ones he has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give everlasting life to them, he says in chapter 10. They will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, Jesus said. And that's why when the author of the Hebrew epistle finally got around to writing his letter to the church, he said, Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. The 11 disciples back then and all who are Christians now find their only source of comfort in these things. The one who came from heaven and took on human flesh, fully atoned for our sins. He redeemed us by his blood. He granted us the unfailing, irrevocable gift of everlasting life. He's taken us into his very arms. And from that place of safety, he will never 
permit us to be removed. Right now, this very instant, as we're gathered here in the name of Christ, the Son of God is holding you. He is holding you. He is praying for you. He is keeping you. And He will never let you go. And that's all you need to know to face tomorrow's sunrise is that the sun is keeping and guarding you. In eternity past, the Father looked into that vast sea of lost humanity and He took you out and gave you to the Son. And then the Son came to Bethlehem in flesh and lived and died and rose again for you. So that it could be said truly that those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called them. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who could possibly bring a charge against God's elect? Who could separate us? What could separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distresses or persecutions or famines or nakedness or peril or sword? No, no, says the word of God. In all of these things, because we're kept and guarded by the shepherd, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death nor life, or angels, or rulers, or things present, or things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or anything else created will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Jesus was praying about. Now may the Lord fill our hearts with the joy he prayed for. Because we know that we belong to him. And though we're alone in one sense, he is not physically with us. We await his return. He is here. His spirit is here. And though we're stationed in a hostile world and will be so until Jesus comes, we are safe and saved forever. And we have the joy of Christmas bursting in our hearts 365 days a year because we belong to the great shepherd. Glory and praise be to the sovereign Son, the King of glory, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who prays for us. Would you bow your head and prepare your hearts to receive communion with